0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Unsourcewall. My name is Elvis and as always I am your host. Now, This is gonna be a pretty interesting episode because not only do we have probably one of the most i think multi-angled little controversies that dc has been up to in a couple weeks but there's been a lot of great comics coming out and i just can't wait to dig into some of them because some of them really do at least for me come out of nowhere where it's not something that i was expecting to enjoy or to even be published in like this current sort of mishmash of titles from the big two that i have no interest in so That's going to be great. But first, some news. As usual, let's push up the casting and movie news. We have two potential casting rumors. One is that Nicolas Cage is going to be voicing Spider-Man Noir in the Spider-Man animated movie, Into the Spider-Verse. Which is interesting. It's still not interesting enough for me to actually want to go see the movie. Like I said, not that I dislike it or that I'm antagonistic toward it, but it's definitely taking advantage of that title, not just these three. And I'd like to see and hear more about what it's going to branch out into. Spider-Man Noir is probably one of the most underrated, yet also has somewhat of a cult fanbase of these alternate spider man that we've seen from time to time. And he's definitely got a great design, so. It'll be interesting to see Nicolas Cage, even if it's going to be like a small cameo role or something like that. I don't expect much. It's like when Nicolas Cage was cast as Spider-Man in the Teen Titans Go movie, where it's sort of like a stunt casting decision, and that's all I really expect from that. Still, if they're going to be doing a lot more with this concept, then I'm all for it. The second casting rumor is that Jeremy Renner is set to play, or at least he's being courted to play, Twitch in the new Spawn movie. And honestly, he's not the first person that I would choose to play Twitch. And I've never been at all enthused about Jeremy Renner in anything I've seen him in. Even in the Mission Impossible movies, I think that he was just okay. He's not one of the most captivating actors around. Although what worries me the most is that we are not hearing anything about Sam. All the casting rumors and all the casting news has only been centered around Twitch. And that's incredibly disconcerting because it's Sam and Twitch. They're a duo. They're a pair. So just doing one is a bit of a cop-out. Unless of course this is only just to set up the eventual Sam and Twitch crossover movie. Which of course I would definitely buy into. Since Bond himself is going to be in the background of this movie and not going to be a tangible aspect of it, then that means that Jerry S as Twitch is going to bear the brunt of the actual story. Which again, I don't think Jerry Minner is the most capable person for that, since I don't think he's that charismatic when put to the task. Moving on to television news, we have new reports from the Titans TV show, not the least of which is that the press release and some PR movements have been really trying to hammer down that this is not a kid-friendly show, that it is meant for an adult and mature audience, even though the way they stated it is probably the least mature way they could have, by saying, oh, we're seeing blood and gore and dropping F-bombs and S-bombs, just say swearing. Saying something bomb, letter bomb, is just insanely kiddish. It just makes your entire point fall flat on its face by doing that. I mean, you can't take that seriously. You really can't. I would rather just wait and see for the execution. And the latest report is that they are definitely sort of leaning into it by making the fantastical members of that team like Raven and Starfighter the only source of fantasticalness in the show while downplaying the rest of the characters. So you have this new information that Hawk and Dove who are somewhat mystical based just straight up vigilantes and that their suits are solely just armor rather than something where they have superpowers and things like that. I think that they could have done a lot more and really leaned into it. Other than that just wait and see. You know that there's a lot of times where they really exaggerate things in order to seem different, and then you watch the actual thing, and it just seems like that's only one percent of the actual full picture. Not to really defend this, I'm not a big booster for this show. It's just that I think that we should all have some sort of perspective, at least for now. Although I am still only interested in the Swamp Thing show. I really, really hope that's good. Honestly, seriously, that's the only one that has any potential. Moving into comic news, we have Grant Morrison coming back for an annual on Sideways. And really, he's bringing back maybe one of the characters that no one thought would ever return the New 52 Action Comics prequel Superman with just the shirt and the cape and that whole blue collar, gung attitude. Honestly, just the idea that Sideways is going on this multiversal adventure is something that is really enticing because that's something that we were not able to get the last time it happened with this kind of superhero. With Vibe, that was definitely an arc that they were planning. They even set up a little villain for that arc with that Suicide Squad member Crowbar or something like that. He got blasted into the multiverse somewhere and it never came to pass. So I'm just guessing that if that series had gone on, we would have gotten that character back in that arc when he was traveling through these various worlds. And that's something that I think Sideways is more capable of handling and delivering on because it is under the Dio's protection. Someone like Jonah Hex and how he can have some pull here and there for the longevity of titles. And maybe on my wish list is that he eventually finds Vibe because the last time we saw Vibe was I think two, three years ago when he was running away in the aftermath of Forever Evil. So he's still out there. He's still out there somewhere in the multiverse and I hope those two meet up and team up because that's desperately what the world needs. Now moving on into the last piece of news I want to talk about and it's not a actual piece of news, it's just a little something that happened that I really want to discuss a little bit more in depth, and that is the reaction and the fallout from the Batman number 50 spoilers because I think that there's something in there that we need to unpack and I have some ideas on what exactly that is because it is something where I actually have some sympathy and some understanding of both sides of this sort of argument. We have on one hand Tom King and he's trying to write this 100 issue mega arc and he's saying that we can't judge it on the midpoint because you're not seeing the full picture and that makes a lot of sense because halfway through it'd be like in a regular arc getting mad at a development in issue 3 or issue 2 where of course that's not the end. That's nowhere near the end and you could get mad at that without reading like at least the next issue then you're really missing the forest for the trees. But on the other hand, it's issue 50. You've been at this for two years. You write two issues a month, and issue number 50 is somewhat of a anticlimax. Not only for the fact that you're 50 issues in, and it's kind of a nonsensical issue, just because of where you're ending it but also because of the whole build-up to it. I'm not talking about Tom King's build-up within the story. I'm talking about the whole build-up on the outskirts of the story where you're really sort of framing it in a way where it's not meant to be. You have all these tie-ins. You have... The whole lead-up meta arcs to it, like the proposal and the meetings between the other leaguers, and the whole Batman Superman double dating stuff. You have all of that, and you have the deluxe edition wedding album card cover that's coming out relatively soon. So you have all of this, and it's insanity because I think that, and I believe that, if it had been played differently, if the story had actually served up to this plot twist where they don't end up getting married, and if that's spoilers i'm sorry but this is coming out on friday so you had more than well enough time to actually read the issue but i have to believe that if it had been built up into that interest then people would not have been as mad as they ended up being and as i've said before i don't believe in spoiler culture i think that the end point of a story is only as good as the execution up to that end point and being sort of surprised that it is somewhat of a superficial thing and i'm not saying that i suspect people who don't want to have spoilers because they believe that that surprise at the end point is an essential part i understand that but even then if the story had been able to sell the readers that this was a natural payoff to that, then I'd have to think that they'd be like, oh, all right, that makes sense. Rather than, why did you have all this stuff going on? Why did you have all these tie-ins that were promoted heavily? Why did you do all of this? And it have not only an issue that felt incredibly lacking, but also one that didn't seem to actually be a natural extension of that outside of its place within the 100-issue arc. And in order to underline what that means, I'm going to reference 100 Bullets from Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Rizzo, whose 50th issue is, I think, a lot more well-placed because you have not only an issue which is just a singular sort of little plot, it's not something that feels climactic, but what it does is that it actually earned the reader, or at least it should have earned the reader's trust in that the rest of the 50 issues after this are going someplace. You have Tom King on Twitter trying to do damage control, saying, This is only the 50th issue. There's 50 issues more. You gotta trust me, never gonna go to like this. The issue should say that you have to trust us. The issue should earn that trust. With 100 bullets, the 50th issue not only gives a backstory, it not only pays off all these plot threads into an actual context, but it assures you that there is a thread work going on. The only thing that Batman number 50 ends up doing is asking questions is begging a question and even then it's a really nonsensical and horrendously weird one that I think it only end in yet another anticlimax. Like I said I, I understand that it's only halfway through but not every series gets to number 50 anymore. Definitely not every run and then not every run gets to 100 issues. So I think that there is definitely an issue with the structure of this and definitely an issue with where you're not really engaging the readers on the right level to where they can understand that this is the midpoint that they can really invest in the rest of it. I think that on a deeper level that they feel a bit let down that it feels so dragged out because you have again Tom King saying that he really wanted to explore fresh and new ways of dealing with Batman and his dynamics with like these other characters yet 50 issues for maybe the most Trite and rote view of Batman's character, that's not fresh. You spent 50 issues on a really stale idea. So you're not even doing what you're setting on to be doing. And even then, you're saying that spending another 50 issues on this other aspect of the same old, tired thing that we've seen before. And that's incredibly disappointing. Of course, I've seen people say that this issue really did do that for them. And I applaud that. More power to them that they're really enjoying this book, honestly, because I think that that's the most important thing, that if it's someone out there is being entertained, that they're really feeling this emotional connection with it, then so be it. You know, that's that's fantastic. I just think that there's so many things that you could have done with the issues. That you could have done with 100 issues. they just find a lackluster and cliche way of looking at Batman and playing with Batman. While also just not having the momentum put in to make a solid and engaging meta arc. Because it's an insanely rare opportunity. And deserves much more effort than what Tom King is doing with it. To leave off though, the last page i've seen many different interpretations of it but the fact of the matter is that whether or not the last page is actually real because a lot of people are saying the best page is a metaphorical page that bane is only on it and the rest is all just aspects of the things leading up to it rather than bane having this whole plan that transcends timelines realities dimensions then that's a really ill-conceived page because that's not something that comes across at all i've seen people say it's genius because metaphorical and i've seen people say it's genius because Bane we'll be was able to do this insane master comic book plan. One of these halves is going to be really disappointed. One of them is going to feel cheated, and it's going to happen soon. So I hope they're able to weather that as well. Anyway, let's move on into comic book reviews, as I promised. Let's start off with Man of Steel, the six issue mini series, and I'm going to reiterate what I said when I first started talking about this series, and that is that it's not bad but it is definitely a bendis comic and what i mean by that is that it has all his hallmarks and that's what's so awful about it It's definitely doing its job at seeding all these plot beats for Bennis' run. And like I said, it's not a comic where you're going to have a definitive end because of that. And I wouldn't be surprised if this gets re-labeled as a trade Superman Volume Zero, The Man of Steel. Because otherwise, if someone reads this as just a general miniseries in trade format, they're going to be disappointed because there is no actual end to it. But in that sense, I think it's just okay. There are actually moments that I enjoyed, honestly. But the main thing is that Bandis does what he usually does, where he either redoes plot points that have been done only recently, and he just reiterates them in a lot more of a simplistic way. And it makes that even worse because it's not the interesting way to go about it. So just by comparison, it's really lacking, and it shows a lot of unoriginality. And what we end up with is just him clearing house, introducing characters that aren't the most captivating and plot threads that are definitely going to be very, very blunt. And that's what we're stuck with. Again, I think that the villain was incredibly unimaginative And I think that some of the plot beats and some of the dialogue quirks were simply awful. But I can't just disregard it entirely because it's okay. What Bendis does is similar to what Johns does. In that he's able to create at least a semblance of a naturalistic cinematic feel. And this issue, I think mainly because of the art itself, is able to capture that very well. If only the writing was up to par with it. I wouldn't recommend it, but I can't say that I'm going to be that surprised if it does hook new coming readers. Anyway, the third issue of Mark and Draco's Jeepers Creepers tie-in has come out, and I'm still enjoying it. It's still a serviceable tie-in. and The plotline is at least interesting, the characters, and what sort of fresh chaos and hell they're going to is gripping in that horror movie sense. And that is definitely a high mark. I'm not saying that it is perfectly horrific or that it is something that really does capture a lot of tension and suspense but it is still I think a rather decent read especially if you're into this series it does play a lot of the concepts and a lot more fluidly. I think the only things that would be off-putting is that the creeper is so much more vocal and so much more exposed in this series. He's definitely more confrontational a lot more direct there's a lot more face-to-face moments so he's much more of a standard antagonist than just the monster in the background or this lurking presence. But other than that, I think Mark and Andrenko is doing a rather good job and in lieu of a fourth movie, like I said, which is never going to happen, this is a definitely adequate substitute. So, three cheers. From Image Comics, we have a series that I actually gave up on. Not because I hated it or that I found it rather detestable. Not the case at all. I just thought that the first arc was rather formulaic So I went back and I binged it and I thought that it was really good. And that series is I Hate Fairyland from Scotty Young. Honestly, I think that after the first arc, the next three arcs had a lot more of a free-flowing and naturally progressing sense of scale and adventure to them. And so that really did get me hooked. It's never a great or I think unmissable read. But it definitely was an intensely enjoyable time. And the ending while leaves itself open to more spin-offs and one-shots. Which Young acknowledges in his afterword to the series. It is definitely a nice little capstone to the comic. If you haven't read it or that you were put off at least earlier on. I'd say give it a chance. Give it until at least the end of the second arc. They're only five issues each. I think it's well worth the time invested. Although, what also came out for Image this week was the Youngblood Volume 2 trade. And I was surprised because the first arc was six issues. But this arc was only five. And those five issues are maybe some of the worst team comics I've read all year. I know I was very much a booster of the first arc. I still think that it's a great little introductory arc for a new team that does make use of the fact that they're all very young characters, that they're set in a new social media-centered universe. But the second arc is nothing but really, really overused little plot beats that we've seen a bunch of times before. and has no cohesiveness. It doesn't do anything interesting. And all these little setups get really rushed payoffs. And then it ends with it saying, next month, Rob Liefeld joins the creative team as artists, Blood War, and that was months ago. So it's definitely shot itself in the foot. And that's a shame because it could have done so many interesting things. And to think that the second volume is out right now with a story that is nothing is laughable. So if anyone wants that first volume that I actually bought, I'll give it away for free. Just comment below or contact me on Twitter for domestic. So let me know. And of course, one of the best reads I've had this week was... Xerxes, which I keep forgetting to mention in this podcast, even though it is definitely one of the best series out right now. And it's not that I keep forgetting because it's not memorable. Far from it, it is incredibly memorable and it is just incredibly captivating and thrilling with issue number three being, I think, Miller's best work in years. And this issue, which is the penultimate issue, really does work against it very well. While the last one was a lot more introspective and a lot more dramatic and character focused, this one is all about the spectacle and very much more outbursting. So I can't wait for the finale and I can't wait to see how this wraps up. Honestly, it's this issue that connects a lot more to 300 and the themes of 300 and that makes me appreciate that one, which I didn't like to begin with that much, a lot more. I think they now work as a great duology. So Fingers crossed that it sticks to landing. For the last thing I read this week, which I think is tied into one of the questions that I got this week, is the Immortal Hulk from Al Ewing. And I have to say, it is probably the most interesting and engaging runs that the Hulk has gotten in years. Personally, because to answer Princess Firebird's question this week about which superhero had the biggest impact on me as a kid, Not necessarily one that was my favorite, but the one I had the most memories of. The Hulk is the uncontested winner of that title. I'm definitely going to be talking about Immortal Hulk, but it's just that it's more intertwined. I'm going to answer some of this question first. Is that the Hulk, I think, is maybe the one comic I read consistently as a kid. And it's not something that I followed month to month. That wouldn't happen until Brightest Day was underway. But in terms of just what I read and the... Consistency at which I read it. It was definitely with the Hulk Essentials that collected Stanley and Jack Kirby's runs that really engaged me on an incredibly deep level. Because as a child, I was definitely one of those that had a standing appointment with the guidance counselor. Because there was a lot of things I had to process and work through. And Jekyll and Hyde and the Hulk were characters that I had felt that I could relate to a lot because they had some of the same sort of issues that I was dealing with where you have these pent-up emotions that come out in, in these ways that you don't really want them to and that you don't really feel like you have control over. And eventually I was able to come up, overcome that. But the initial nuggets of entertainment still stand with me. And I remember reading those old encyclopedias, those superhero encyclopedias, and I would pour over it and I would read all these little comics that I had never had the chance to read and I wouldn't for years. I would read about Hulk, 2009. I would read about the various Mind Hulks. I would read about Jarella, and I would just read about so many of these different arcs and trials and tribulations and what really grabbed me what I think was the real cornerstone of that was that the Hulk was kind of a piece of shit especially in those early Stan Lee and Jack Kirby issues. That's something that I really think that Al Ewing's run pinpoints perfectly while he's still heroic because the Hulk has to be a hero in a sense. It is so much more downplayed and it's so much more on the level of where he is in the original comics, where he has this condescending, bitter, and somewhat of a trash fire personality. He consistently badmouths Rick Jones, he consistently badmouths Dr. Bruce Banner, he consistently badmouths everything, and he's just so detached and unconcerned with anything around him other than his own benefit and his own sense of ego. That's just amazing to me and that's something that I really see expressed here in this run where he is a lot more caustic and he has so much disrespect and disregard for Bruce Banner at least right now and he is just a force of monstrous nature which Ewing points out in his afterward to the first issue and what Ewing also gets by making it more horror centered is that whether or not recent runs had ever taken advantage of it to this extent Jack Kirby's and Stan Lee's run at least had the roots of a horror comic. It itself was based on Jekyll and Hyde, which Alan Moore took full advantage of. But also, the Hulk is a werewolf. He really is. There is a huge undercurrent in those initial issues where the Hulk only comes out at night. And it's not this whole, any stress will do it type thing. It's just when night strikes, wherever he is, Bruce Banner will just switch on like that. The Hulk isn't a terror of the night. He is one of those ghouls that lurks in the shadows and that is definitely something that lends itself into a horror genre and El takes full advantage of that by making it so much more gothically and macabre based especially the second issue which is just completely frightening in its concepts and I think that is such a genius way of both adding a freshness that we haven't seen in the Hulk for a long long time while also being extremely loyal to the root of the character. I honestly think that this series and I hope it doesn't get bogged down in events and tie-ins and crossovers, because if it doesn't, then it has the full potential of doing something insanely special. For all of that, I have the utmost respect for it, and it is the Hulk I think that I've been waiting for ever since I got around to actually being able to read comics monthly and be a part of the whole comics scene. Anyway, thank you, Princess Firebird at Sunglass Pry, for that question. I'm gonna actually go back and read my old Essentials. I still have them from when I was a kid. I've always wanted to get back into the Hulk, but every time a new run came along, I just couldn't. It just never had that interest to me. I'd always get insanely bored, but this one, I'm gonna be stick with it. Anyway, since we're already into the listener's questions section, let's move on to the second question. This one comes from the ever great Medea, and their question is, cases where I preferred an adaptation to the comic slash book. Now, this is an interesting one. I think maybe the only adaptation I felt was more enjoyable than the actual series was Bulletproof Monk. Now, I was going to say something a bit more conventional like The Mask, but the fact of the matter is that The Mask, at least, I think, is still an enjoyable read on its own. It's not as good as the movie, and not for cliche reasons. Like, it's not funny enough. I just think that The Mask was a lot more ill-structured. It's not that engaging, and the movie just flows a lot better as a story while well, the comic of the mask is, I think, a little bit more stilted, and it does skip over a lot of the more interesting aspects that it could have branched out into, and that subsequent miniseries actually took full advantage of. But yeah, it's still worth a read. While with Bulletproof Monk, the original comic, it's hard to track down. And the fact of the matter is that it's not worth it to track it down. And I know, I have. And it's just not an interesting comic. It's honestly verging on incredibly boring and somewhat nonsensical. While for the movie, which changes it radically, but not as radically as you might think, it totally runs on the cheesy and corny late 2000s afterglow to it and just is purely fueled by both chow young fat and sean william scott being both just incredibly entertaining and the dynamic also really being very very fun and honestly worth a watch it's funny they actually made a prequel slash spinoff comic during the movie's promotional campaign that's somehow still tied in with the original comic, but they replaced the character with a Sean William Scott esque version of himself. And I'm not going to beat around the bush. Sean William Scott's character in the movie is a distinct case of whitewashing. But I think Sean William Scott handled it so well and I think it just makes the whole aspect of his mentor being Chang Yong Fat and just how they bounce off each other a lot more hilarious. But it is somewhat of a stark contrast. And really, I'm inspired to go back and watch it because a lot of it is just so damn ridiculous. There's a whole plot of Nazis and there's Mr. Funk-tastic, as the censors called him. And <laughs> it's just a really, really silly and carefree movie, while the comic, I think, is just so dull without doing a lot of the actual context and a lot of the elaboration that the movie ends up doing where it takes this whole unbelievable and fantastical idea and plays it to the hilt while the comic spends a lot more time padding it out and you don't really get to the whole fruit of it until way later than you should so thank you medea for that amazing question next up is Eggmath. And their question is, what is my favorite of Kirby's Marvel works? Now, I would say Hulk again, but I spent a lot of time talking about that and I don't want to repeat myself or just kind of cheap out on this question. So I'm going to go with my second favorite, even though it should be my first favorite. If Immortal Hulk hadn't reignited my passion for the original series. Devil Dinosaur. It is simply the most outrageous Marvel comic that Kirby did. It's even more outrageous than Eternals because I think Eternals really does lose a point for being such a reiteration of New Gods concepts but only a little bit less interesting. While Devil Dinosaur takes this little nugget of idea that could have just been a small, simple idea and then just explodes upon it and just goes insane, incredibly... Outrageous, outlandish places that honestly I did not expect. And it's not a perfect comic. I think that some of the writing could border on Kirby's worst at times. There are some issues that I think are just incredibly lame and not very well thought out. And then others are just fantastic. And I think it's it's a little perfect series if you want something that is just going to blow away all your expectations. But it's definitely worth at least looking up and seeing if it's your thing. Because it is such a microcosm of Kirby. From his highest to his lows of what he was capable of and what he might not have been so great at. So yeah, that is my favorite, at least solo Kirby Marvel work. So thank you for that question, Egg. Grateful as always. And finally, another question from the Great Illuminated, and their question is: Since Friday the Thirteenth is coming up, in your opinion, have the been comics that did horror well? Which, like I've said, Dastardly and muttly, fantastic, Providence, a masterpiece but to really keep it rolling a walk through hell i think is the latest and greatest lovecraft series it's not overtly tied in as providence was at least even in the metaphysical and supernatural aspects but it captures the complete core feeling and terror a lot more a lot more palpably And it is such a great little series and I can't wait to see where it goes because it does everything so well. And it has that true sense of horror and fright. That's one of the main key points that I don't think comics are really able to do all that well most of the time. Being frightening. And A Walk Through Hell is able to capture that payoffs and these little beats that really get at you. So yes, um, I've also mentioned Strange Abrace. But A Walk Through Hell definitely is rising up there among the rest I've mentioned. Anyway, that's it for listener questions. And as always, it is a huge pleasure answering all of your questions and listening to your feedbacks on Twitter and everywhere else. It's such an experience for me and I am so grateful. Anyway, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or topics that you would want to hear discussed on the show, you can always contact me weekly on my Twitter account at T-H-E underscore S-N-I-C-K-M-A-N. Also, immorally thankful for at the o t e m c e e for doing the cover art and yet again i've added below the mad magic links to both the comic and to the voting page let's keep getting it up there before i forget i'd like to add that i'm going to be doing a spoiler cast on ant-man and the wasp next week i'm planning on watching it this weekend so if you have any movie specific questions that you want to ask please keep those in mind if you do thank you for listening and see you all next week